0: Welcome to The Plastic Surgeon and I. Although it's one of the most common plastic surgical procedures in Australia, there still exists a lot of myths and misunderstandings about it. Hello, I'm Chris Ashmore. I'm talking about facelifts, a treatment which is becoming more popular and more widely accepted in the community. To help iron out some of those misunderstandings is plastic surgeon Dr. Jonathan Azapardi. Shortly, he explains the different types of facelifts you can receive, what to expect during the operation and how to prepare for recovery. But first, why do people consult with surgeons like Dr. Azapardi for a facelift? Is it simply because they're getting older and they want to look younger?
1: Yeah, so the reasons why patients want to have a facelift uh, vary across a wide spectrum. However, I guess in my practice specifically, most patients come to me wanting to look refreshed and less tired, which is consistent with my principles in my practice of facial aesthetic surgery. And yes, sure, a facelift does contribute to a degree of youthfulness. Uh, however, looking young doesn't only depend on one factor, it depends on a wide range of characteristics which include physical features, one's demeanor, the way one walks, the way one talks, and many others. So in addition to that, a facelift can only address the mid and lower face, so it's only a part of the whole face. Things like the eyes and the brow would remain unchanged with just a facelift, unless uh, another procedure is added, such as a a blepharoplasty for eyelids and a brow lift for the brow. And um, as we age, changes to all the anatomical components of the face, so from skin down to bone, lead to a tired and worn-out appearance. And these elements uh, may have also aged disproportionately to the rest of them in some cases. And this is often in conflict with how one truly feels, and there is therefore a conflict between one's form and function. So a facelift can therefore help soften the dominant aging features of the face, which makes one look and feel refreshed and vibrant once again, and sure, while restoring a degree of youthfulness.
0: Is there a particular age one should wait until they have a facelift, or is there an age where it's most beneficial?
1: Well, the technical extent of a facelift and the degree of what can be achieved is always tailored to that individual case and should therefore not be exclusive to a specific age group. Furthermore, genetics and environment have a big impact on how rapidly and severely one's face ages, which does not always and does not necessarily match the expected age of a patient. So in my practice, uh, patients seeing me for a facelift have ranged from their early 40s to to late 70s. And uh, at the end of the day, regardless of one's age, assessment of the facial tissues is what determines whether that particular case is a suitable candidate for a facelift. And and yes, a facelift is a powerful procedure uh, for addressing excess lax tissue, and that that tends to sag over time and obscures the the underlying curves and contours of a youthful face. To me, an important, uh, a crucial consideration is the expected longevity of a facelift. So obviously, aging does not stop. Therefore, the younger a patient is when they have a facelift, the longer their remaining life expectancy. And therefore, obviously, the more likely uh, subsequent surgery will be required to maintain that result.
0: Do different skin types and ethnicities matter in facelift outcomes?
1: Yes, for sure. So ethnicity and skin type matter uh, when considering a facelift. Sun damage, uh, loss of connective tissue, changes in facial structure from loss of fat and bone resorption, skin tone and texture and color changes of the skin all vary among different ethnicities and and skin types so specifically relevant to a facelift uh, for example an aging caucasian face tends to be defined by uh, hollowing with thin skin that has a moderate to severe degree of excess laxity and wrinkles on the other hand an aged asian face tends to be defined by heavier totic global facial subunits, while still maintaining some degree of fullness, and they tend to have less wrinkling. Now those are just two examples. Uh, but therefore the techniques used need to bear these differences in mind. So an Asian facelift, again, for example, would tend to require more robust anchoring with a focus on repositioning of deeper compartments. On the other hand, a Caucasian facelift, Usually requires more extensive skin redraping due to the significant excess. And these cases tend to be complemented well with other techniques that re establish the loss of volume, such as fat grafting. The other thing is the outcome of a scar. So, this is heavily influenced by skin type. Again, Asian and darker skin types tend to be more prone to hypertrophic and keloid scars.
0: And what's happening in surgery? Jonathan, what are you doing when you're performing a facelift?
1: So from a surgical perspective, when I perform a facelift, I am eliminating excess sagging tissues of the face in order to re-establish the obliterated natural facial curves and contours that are present in a youthful face. So this shifts the focus from a worn out and tired mid and lower face to a more well-defined cheeks, softer nasolabial folds, and sharper definition of the jawline and and the neck. And from a technical point of view, I execute this by accessing the deep plane of the face through short incisions around the ears. So, So those are more of, I guess, technical elements with regards to what I'm doing when I do a facelift.
0: And how long can it take?
1: In my hands, a facelift or a neck lift. So it's important to think about these two procedures as separate, but Having said that, they do obviously get done together very often, but just the facelift or just a neck lift takes me about two to three hours. When I'm doing a face and neck lift in combination, that takes me about three to four hours. Of course, adding other procedures such as a brow lift, uh, blepharoplasty or fat grafting, which which are often done uh, with a facelift, can then change that time significantly.
0: Mm. You mentioned this earlier, but uh, depending on the person, it's not necessarily a a once-in-a-lifetime procedure.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it, it depends on both patient factors and also the type of facelift performed from a technical point of view. And, yeah, exactly. The younger one is when they first have a facelift, then the more likely they will feel the needs to have another facelift later on in life. And there are also genetic and environmental factors which influence the facial tissue types and quality, which tends to have a direct impact on on the longevity of that facelift.
0: And what types of facelifts are there? There are many types
1: of facelifts that are being performed and uh, a range of terms are used in the literature to describe all the types. Uh, I like to explain the type of facelift I do based on the location and extent of the skin incision. Uh, and also based on the plane of the section. So, I mean, then I will include more descriptive terms as part of my consultation in order to explain the various intricacies of the procedure itself. So, yeah, I perform a short scar arm block deep plane facelift, and this means that my incision is in front of the ear, but it does not extend into the temporal hairline. So it stops at the upper border of the ear, which is known as the helical root of the ear. It then continues halfway behind the ear, once again not extending along the hairline. And in terms of the plane, so a deep plane simply means that my dissection is deep to a defined anatomical layer called the SMAS, rather than a more superficial plane directly underneath the skin, which is an alternative. And the term unblock simply means altogether. So in this case, uh, refers to dissecting deep to that SMAS layer without separating the overlying skin first. So the skin and SMAS are raised together as one.
0: And that scarring, is it, is it visible?
1: Look, any incision through the full thickness of the skin leads to the formation of a scar. It is the normal result of wound healing. A scar is therefore unavoidable, which is why where it is placed and the surgical technique is so important to ensure it is barely noticeable. And as discussed earlier, uh, placement of the incision is around the ear, and this ensures that the final scar blends in along those natural lines and junctions that that you can see between different facial subunits. And with an unblocked deep-plane facelift, importantly, I am able to achieve a tension-free closure, of the skin because the tension is placed on the deeper layers which is really important for a good scar to make sure that you have closure without tension on the skin and the other thing is meticulous tissue handling and wound closure are also vital to ensure the best possible final scar there are other factors such as ethnicity skin type and potential postoperative complications which which may complicate the wound healing process and potentially then lead to a less than ideal result I always uh, explain to my patients the, the natural progression of a scar. It's important to understand that a scar continues to change. Uh, it's dynamic for at least 12 to 18 months. And during this time it undergoes remodelling, which means its appearance will continue to change and evolve over this period of time, at least.
0: Well, you mentioned complications. Um, can you go into that into a bit more detail and uh, any potential risks involved
1: yes absolutely so any surgery carries potential risks and complications and some of the specific risks associated with a facelift include uh, but are not limited to things like infection and anything we do every step we take in an operating theater is designed to reduce risk so in the in the case of an infection obviously the, the theater has sterile conditions we administer antibiotics on induction and all these things reduce that risk. Bleeding is another potential risk. This can be intraoperatively. In the case of a facelift, it's normally fairly minimal and and well-controlled. Having said that, a collection of blood can also form after the surgery, and this is known as a hematoma. And usually, typically, it may form just immediately after the patient wakes up or in the recovery room. Depending on its size, that will determine how it's managed. So, If it's a large hematoma, a large collection of blood, then the patient often requires a return to the operating theatre for removal of that collection and control of the underlying bleed. Nerve damage is certainly something we always discuss with our facelift patients, and this can be in a a temporary form or a more permanent nerve damage situation, which which may lead to a loss of uh, simply feeling in some parts of the face, such as the ear. Uh, but it can also affect motor nerves, which means patients may end up with weakness or paralysis of some of the muscles of facial expression. Poor scarring is another potential risk, which we've briefly touched on before. And importantly, with any aesthetic procedure, dissatisfaction. So uh, cosmetic outcome is is very subjective. So obviously, even if the surgeon or the clinician may feel that the patient has achieved a, a, a satisfactory result, Uh, the patient may not necessarily be happy with that. So it's certainly something that people need to be counselled on during the preoperative consult.
0: Indeed. Now, after surgery, what should patients expect after surgery and uh, what's the recovery like?
1: So my patients are allowed to go home on the same day of surgery. From an anaesthetic point of view, a carer needs to be present at home for that first night. But surgically, from the, the facelift specifically point of view, uh, they don't need to stay in hospital. So patients wake up with a, with a bandage around their face, which is then changed by myself to a garment prior to discharge. I do not use any surgical drains, which uh, most facelift surgeons do. So in my case, there will be no drains to remove. I then see my patients in my consulting rooms one week post-op and subsequent reviews are then guided by that specific case and by their recovery. But usually, most often, I would see patients again at that two-week mark and then again at the six- to eight-week mark, roughly. And then ongoing reviews on the long-term as needed. It's important to see these patients, you know, even after a year to make sure their results are maintained. In terms of the uh, immediate post-operative recovery, most of the swelling, which is what a lot of people want to know about because of, you know, whether they're going to be presentable to the public, most of the swelling subsides after the first week, and then is usually barely noticeable after two weeks. In terms of returning to work, it very much depends on that particular patient's role, Uh, so I like to discuss that specifically on a case-by-case basis. And same goes for exercise and, and other activities. It depends on what is being done specifically. So so these particular limitations I discuss on a case-by-case basis.
0: Are there alternatives or complementary treatment options to surgery?
1: Yes, there are always uh, alternatives and, and complementary treatment options. Uh, the key is to have a thorough understanding of what a facelift can achieve and what its limitations are. So uh, a facelift, again, improves sagging facial tissue, uh, drooping um, skin. And yes, there are several non-surgical technologies out there that are designed to tighten the skin. However, as you you can imagine, only surgery can truly address and eliminate uh, moderate to severe tissue excess. Uh, So it is important to understand also the limitations of a facelift. A facelift cannot improve the texture and the quality of the skin, It cannot address all the signs of aging, as it only targets the lower face and neck. And also, it cannot correct any underlying skeletal facial asymmetry that patients present with, which would have been present potentially since birth. So with these limitations in mind, other treatments can be incorporated into the the overall journey to complement a facelift. These may include uh, some simple things like sun protection, a healthy lifestyle, medicated topical skin products, laser treatments, chemical peels, and even wrinkle-relaxing injections and fillers. Fillers can be in the form of an off-the-shelf filler or in the form of fat graft. And then in terms of other procedures, you know, other surgical procedures, as we mentioned prior, brow lift or blepharoplasty often are able to complement the overall result when done in conjunction with a facelift.
0: Well, a big uh, question people might have is how it affects their hip pocket. What are the costs involved?
1: So, yeah, very important topic. And uh, I think it's very important that we're we're transparent about uh, the costs involved. So a facelift is a cosmetic operation, uh, which means all the costs are therefore out of pocket. There are some very limited uh, examples of when a facelift or the term used in this scenario is a meloplasty can be rebatable by Medicare. And this is in, in, in the settings of facial asymmetry secondary to trauma or when carried out to correct a functional impairment due to a congenital condition, a disease or trauma. But certainly in the in the facial rejuvenation setting, which is really what we're talking about today, costs are out of pocket. And the costs involved uh, include predominantly three components, the, the surgery fee, which is what the, the surgeon Charges. There's also the anaesthetic fee and the hospital fee. And it's important that these are three independent parties and they all need to be addressed to cover the overall cost.
0: Well, finally, if someone is thinking about getting a facelift, where do they go?
1: So the first step is to look for a fully qualified plastic surgeon who is a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. And one can look out for fracks. Uh, after one's name, so FRACS, which should be after that um, surgeon's name to, to demonstrate that they are truly indeed a, a legitimate surgeon. And then ideally the surgeon should have spent some additional years after becoming a specialist plastic surgeon, subspecializing in facial plastic anaesthetic surgery. So I, I trained in both craniofacial surgery and facial aesthetic surgery after completing my plastic surgery specialist training. And then essentially a consult with that selected surgeon will then provide the patient an opportunity to discuss their concerns and wishes. Uh, I always encourage patients to seek a second opinion and to certainly have at least two reviews by that same surgeon before making any final decisions to embark on this facial aesthetic surgery journey.
0: Well, Jonathan, we've covered a lot. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. That was Dr Jonathan as a party. Next episode, we learn the techniques plastic surgeons use to help deal with a visible scar. Laser can be incredibly powerful and incredibly useful for a number of scars, particularly hypertrophic scars or scars that are unsightly, itchy, red, painful. Life is just a bit more comfortable when that scar is being treated with the laser. That's Dr. Jeremy Rawlins. Next episode. The Plastic Surgeon and I is proudly brought to you by ASPS, the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons. For more information, please visit plasticsurgery.org.au. Until next time, I'm Chris Ashmore. Thanks for listening.